We're going to read two scriptures, one from Exodus chapter 20 and the other one from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We've been working through the Ten Commandments, you might remember. So we've hit a lot of different places. So we started at the first commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods besides me. And what, we, what I was saying during that time is um, the, the core message of that is God wants to be in an amazing, loyal, loving relationship with us. That's his desire. And so when he says, don't have any other gods before me, what he, before me or besides me, what he isn't saying is don't have any fun. He's saying, don't ruin the best thing ever, which is living in a love-based, loyal, committed, exclusive relationship with the God of the universe who wants us. That's the first command. And so we, we went there and just said, when God says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength, he is, um, he's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to make your life. This is the best thing possible, is to have this amazing love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we went different places. We've talked about rest and work, and we've talked about coveting. We actually started out on coveting. Does anybody remember what the main point of coveting, thou shalt not covet, is? No, good, I knew. I ignored it long enough. The big idea is that God wants to give you an utterly unique life, unlike anybody else in this room. So, So don't compare and don't complain. Instead, just come to the Lord and say, God, do something amazing and glorious through my life. Okay, everybody here through Jesus can have a, a totally awesome, unique relationship with God. One of the things I love about God is that God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can, can look at you all day long with 100% attention and nobody else in the world has lost anything. He's, he's everywhere, he's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, and he can be with us 100%, all of his presence, all of his attention with each one of us completely and everyone can have that experience because God is infinite. And so he's saying, like, look, I'm making, you're a unique being. Even me, I'm an identical twin. We're still pretty unique, let me tell you. But you who aren't twins, you're really, really one of a kind. I'm two of a kind. It's kind of, you know, genetics. But anyhow, we, we do look a little bit different. I'm two of a kind. You're one of a kind. God is not trying to do in your life what he's doing in everybody else's life. So we're not supposed to compare and complain when he starts doing different things in everybody's life. Instead, we're supposed to say, God, make your glory come. Send the Spirit. Do something amazing. Lift up Jesus Christ in my life without comparing and without um, getting discouraged because of different stuff. Though, of course, you know, if Greg comes up here and says, I am just so free of fear of man, and through the love of the Father, go ahead and get jealous about that kind of stuff because God wants to do that in everybody's life. Amen? Don't, don't be upset about the running gift. You know, run, you can run. How dare you, sir? Uh, that's where I struggled, you know. But, you know, spring's coming. Sometime late September, the good weather should show up. And then I'll get out there and put a few miles on my running shoes. But when, when it comes to stuff that, that God wants everybody to have, go ahead and get jealous and seek the Lord for that because he wants to do it for you too. He wants to set you free too. He wants you to know the love of Christ and the love of the Father through Jesus as well. So today we're talking about um, you shall not commit adultery. So let me read the scripture from Exodus and then from Timothy as well. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And then in 2 Timothy 4, starting verse 16, Paul says this, At my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can we pray together? 
Father, I just, uh, I'm in such great need of you. Father, this is this impossible task of being a servant of your word. God, I am so grateful that you decided to make a perfectly trustworthy book out of, in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. God, you have spoken to us, and you've spoken to us in such a way that we have um, writings that are God speaking to us. So, Father, thank you. Father, thank you that we live in a time where there's so many translations, God, and we have it in our own language. I'm not uh, going to be reading things in Latin to people, but we, in English, have these reliable translations of the Word of God. Thank you, Father. What an amazing gift. Father, thank you for the sufferings of the Isaiahs and the Ezekiels and the Jeremiahs and the Moseses and the Pauls and the the Lukes and the Johns who suffered to bring about your word to us, Lord. And I just want to thank you that you brought about your word through hurting people who cost them. And Father, here we are today. I believe, Father, that at the preaching of your word, when your word is heard with faith, you work miracles. You send a fresh measure of your Holy Spirit and you work miracles in our midst to put the exclamation mark that you're talking. So God, I want you to do that today. God, I would love to see some physical healings. But Lord, the burden of my day is that the miracle of faith would hit people's hearts and areas of hearts and minds that have been hard or have been guarded for years would soften and walls would come down to true faith and receiving the glory of Jesus Christ, which is that God has come to save his enemies and turn them into beloved children and to protect them until we meet face to face. And Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our joy together. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You shall not commit adultery. As we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, you may remember we've been kind of dealing with them in different ways. So what I've been saying is that when you come to any one of the Ten Commandments, God is trying to build this covenant community, a nation out of Israel. And so sometimes he touches things that are kind of like in the legal world, like you shall not murder. Sometimes he talks about things that are kind of more in the personal spiritual world, like you shall not covet or you shall have no other gods. But he's trying to build a nation, a covenant nation, through these Ten Commandments. And um, as we've been looking at them, I've, I've, I've said Jesus shows us that there's kind of a shallow meaning to these commandments, excuse me, and there's also a deeper heart level core issue um, meaning for these Ten Commandments. And so that when we come to a command like you shall not commit adultery, the shallow meaning, and I don't mean the unimportant meaning, but just the meaning on the surface, is that um, the marriage covenant, the the marriage, sexual marriage covenant, um, shall not be broken by a sexual encounter with somebody outside of that covenant. That's what it means. It's a command to guard that marriage covenant. But that command is really highlighting the most guarded covenantal relationship that there can be, the covenant between a man and a woman for marriage. But there's a deeper meaning that permeates all of human relationships. And so I want to look at that by looking at seeing how you, the do not, the negative side, the don't do this, as well as the pop, positive side, do do this. And as I understand it, I, what I hear God saying is, um, don't treacherously break your relationships. That's the deeper meaning, the heart-level meaning. God has given you relationships that are meant to be nurtured and protected, so, so don't break those things. Don't, don't betray. And on the positive side, loyally guard the relationships God has given you. We all have lots of different kinds of relationships. Some of them are kind of more established and some of them kind of more um, 
casual. But God is saying, guard your relationships as much as it's up to you. And don't betray them. And behind this, God is saying this is because he is a covenant-keeping God. He's a faithful God. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't break his covenants. He doesn't betray. So he's saying, be like me. I, I don't betray people. So mirror me to the world. Image me to the world. Guard your relationships with each other. And we can see this in lots of different ways. So I just picked a bunch of verses that easily came to mind, which is essentially how I make all my, my sermons. A bunch of verses that came to mind where we're being called by God to guard relationships. So in Hebrews 13, verse 17 and following, here's some commands about guarding our relationships as a church that has like leaders and followers in it. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So you see the relationship there, right? There's a, some people who are called to watch over other people and guard them and protect them and be concerned about how they're doing. And then those people are meant to kind of submit and be led by the leaders. And so these leaders are called to watch over souls as those who are to give an account. So here's Jesus overseeing all of it. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So he's saying to people, hey, guard your relationship with your leaders because you can make life really hard on them. And it's not going to bless you if, everyone, if everyone's just really not enjoying leading the church. That's just not, you know, double thumbs up yellow, three-fingered emoticon. In another instance, from Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church, and there's these two ladies who have um, started having a little civil war in the church here. And so he says, I entreat Yodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, and uh, sometimes people translate that as a name as well, which is like Eutychus or something like that. Um, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And you could think that just a couple ladies who are maybe working at MCC or helping at the soup kitchen and they were talking about end time stuff and they got really hung up on the fifth trumpet and one person thinks it's, you know, Russia and the other person thinks it's Cuba and then they just, they just you know, start spinning out of control. You'd think that, oh, that's just life. But it was actually important enough for Paul to write a letter to them from prison. Hey, hey, hold on. You guys aren't guarding your relationships. And so he actually invites a third person or the entire church to get involved saying, Look, we, we're not going to throw each other under, under the bus over this thing. We've got to guard our relationships here, which is really amazing. And then also when I'm reading something like Colossians chapter 3, where sometimes they call these the household commands or whatever, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. This is how we guard our relationships, these special familial relationships now that we're in Christ. So it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And Paul is just saying, you guys need to guard your relationships with each other. And those of you who are kind of more in a leadership role, whether it's husbands or parents, harshness is going to really kill this. And those of you who are a bit more in a under-authority or following roles, rebellion just is going to make this really tough. So guard your relationships in Christ. Don't betray each other. Don't throw each other under the bus. Care about each other in the relationships that God has given you. So easy peasy, right? We're done. Everybody's just going to go off and do that. No problems, no hardships, no sweat. Just a little water running off a duck's back. 
And that's why we gather together, because this Christian life is just no problem. Slam dunk. The net's only four feet high. The hoop is three meters wide. Can't miss. Well, no. It's actually really easy to damage relationships. It's actually really easy to experience a betrayal. It's actually really easy to end up in that role of betraying. Sometimes the betrayals happen on purpose. Sometimes they happen by accident. Sometimes they happen by neglect. But I think it's actually really easy to... It's really fair just to assume all of us have experienced pretty major betrayals in our life one way or another and carry the wounds of it. Um, And I want to focus on this betrayer side. I I can't talk about everything on a Sunday morning, so I want to, for the rest of our time together, as we're being called by this God of faithfulness, who is not an adulterer, who does not throw in the towel on a covenant relationship, who does not betray his people looking for something else or looking for something better, who doesn't quit on us, as he calls us to be like him, I want to just assume that we're actually, many of us carry around the wounds of being betrayed, And I want to bring us to the Father through that because it's out of experiencing God's faithful love that we're able to actually deal with the daily life of relationships and be people who build up relationship instead of tearing it down. There are many different ways that we experience betrayals. And you don't have to go through an adultery to have been really hurt by people and feel like you were thrown under the bus. I don't actually know where that saying came from. It's, it's a great picture. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but it's a great picture, right? Like, all of a sudden, you and I were just standing here, and then I was going under the wheels of an 18-wheeler. Like, I don't know what happened exactly, but I wasn't expecting you were going to do that, and it really hurt. It's a good picture, getting thrown under the bus, and it really it means betrayal. There's lots of different ways that we can feel betrayed in this life. Um, sometimes friendships break down. Sometimes... Um, Oh, guys, I, I, I can't even... How do you even pick something, right? It's like, explain why life is. Well, there's a star there, and there, look, there, there's carpet here, and there was a car outside, and a butterfly, and uh, uh, it just it's all right here. Um, some of the major, biggest, impacting ones that we're going to f- feel or experience betrayals would be uh, in family relationships. So if you've ever been through a family feud where you're kind of expecting a brother or a sister to take care of you or a mom or a dad to take care for you, and all of a sudden that just disappears, and now people aren't talking to each other, and you, some of you get together around Christmas time, and one of you has been in contact with the person who's not there, and you're getting the information about why they're not there, and then you go home and you spend the next three months trying to get over it, and then you know that you can really feel thrown under the bus in family life because there's kind of an expectation. God's put you in covenant together as a family, and there's an expectation for caring and guarding each other, and it's really easy to be selfish in your family. I think everyone can admit that we do that sometimes. Um, Breakups. I I, kind of know that the teenagers tend towards the second service. I don't know why. The youth group people kind of tend towards, I don't know why. Um, But let me just say this. um, Dating. Um, If you can't, get married in the near future, why are you doing it? Because essentially what you're doing is just getting ready to break up with somebody and make them feel rejected and hurt and like they're worthless and you don't like them anymore. So if you want to date, can I make the suggestion that you just do this? You just say, hey, do you mind if I break up with you in six months? Start like that. Don't say, hey, do you want to date? Start with say, hey, do you mind if I reject you in three months? 
And if they're excited about that, go ahead. But just getting all the information on the table. It's about one of a thousand relationships that persevere from grade 10 into marriage. And if it doesn't, I'm just making that up. It's probably one in 10,000 nowadays. It's very, very, very rare. And so if you can't make the marriage work soon and actually get into a workable covenant, you're just getting ready to have a breakup. And the human heart is not made to be rejected. It's just not... We were never made to actually form like a physical hug-love relationship with somebody who will throw us under the bus. We just aren't made for it. And the teenage years are particularly... Uh, impressionable and forming your character. Like we just, we were made to be in a garden where everybody's kind to each other and we're not scared of each other because nobody's sinning against each other. That's how we were made. So all the other stuff is just counter how we were made. We weren't made to to cuddle for three months and then throw each other under the bus or trade each other in for something else or whatever happens there. And so I know we're joking a little bit, but it's really, really, really serious. Some of the biggest regrets of my life were dating from high school and what I did to somebody through it. And I would wish that you wouldn't have those kinds of memories. Um, okay, let's talk about divorce a little bit. Uh, anything that I say here, I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt anybody or expose anybody or press on any wounds, but um, within the last hundred years or so, um, our culture's attitude really changed about divorce. It became easier and more acceptable. And, um, and divorce, you know, is a legal thing, but, and relationships are in with it, but it's become so just a part of life that these relationships that are kind of meant to be the corest core relationships, whether it's in a marriage relationship or how your mom and your dad did it, that, it, that uh, things fall apart so often, or people just don't get married anymore. Um, it's, it's just kind of the air we breathe is to take our most intimate relationships, which would be our sexual relationship, the most intimate physical thing you can do with somebody, and then to... And that produces people. It produces people. Everybody comes out of that. One thing I know for sure is your parents had sex. Right? Because nobody comes here except for that. Um, these most intimate relationships purposefully attacked, purposefully degraded, purposefully damaged, purposefully made easier to to uh, throw away. And as human beings, we can't ignore the damage that comes through that for, through us, to us, through that. Whether it's kind of like you make this covenant with somebody till death do you part, and then it ends, and something in you dies. The death happens even if it's a legitimate divorce because of sexual sin or something. Jesus didn't say there's no permissible divorce. He said there's no permissible divorce except outside of sexual sin. So even when it's permissible or legitimate, um, it's, there's still a major death in there because of the betrayal that's involved in it. Like, um, and then it, for the kids, um, and, I'm, I'm, and there's, there's lots of redemption and Jesus saves, but when there's kids involved, like a, every human being is half of two people knit together in a way that you can't take apart. That's what it means to be a human being. Your mom's DNA and your dad's DNA mate, they go on a date and and they decide to mingle together. They zipper up their DNA into one strand of DNA and it starts growing and becomes a person. And that's what every single one of us is. 
and what we were made for. I know, here's all your biology lesson. What we were made for is for us as human beings to have the two people who made us be in relationship with each other, to be just as unified as our DNA is. That's what we were made for. We were made for our parents to be just as unified as our DNA is. And when that doesn't happen, it, it, there is an impact. And I think what we learn through many of these things, and I'm just pulling out some of them, and you've got your own story, what we tend to learn is, is that um, the world is not a safe place relationally. And you ditch me and I ditch you. And I, I'm trying to find a place where I can relax relationally. Because we want that place where we're accepted, we're at peace, we're loved, and we can trust the other person, but it's really hard to get there. And sometimes stuff happens to us where we just we find it very difficult to get there. I, when I was in high school, one of my grade 12 teachers had a friend who was involved in a hunting accident where somebody shot him with a shotgun. And um, I think he went blind in one of his eyes, but he got sprayed with the pellets, all these little pellets. And I think they took out some of them that might have threatened his health, but they left a bunch of pellets in him because it just went into his skin and then scabbed over. And, and so he spent like the next few decades, every once in a while, another pellet will have found its way to the surface. And then, blink, you'd work it out kind of like a, a really big zit. Like just, you pop his... I know. It, yeah. So can you imagine just, oh, there's a, another lead thing coming out there and... It's tragic, but it's actually a good picture of life as a betrayed person. You've been shot, and it went in all over you. And as a Christian, some of the big ones have been taken out, but every once in a while, the evidence that you've been shot, there it is again, and it needs to get dealt with. The pain of it, the feelings of injustice, of a betrayal, the fear of a future, future relationships, it happens. And so here's... Paul. Why did I read the scripture about Paul? Paul is in a state when he's writing 2 Timothy where he's experienced a major betrayal. So he's been arrested for the last time. He's about to be executed and he's been taken to trial. And this letter is being written after his first trial appearance. And this is what he says about his trial experience. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Doesn't that sound like a guy who's just been betrayed? Like Paul has devoted his life since the Damascus Road to caring for people, preaching the gospel, raising up disciples, gathering groups of loyal disciples around him, going on missionary journeys. And here he is, like years and years and years of leading people to Jesus later. And at the lowest moment in his life where he is literally on trial and they're going to kill him, he can't find one Christian to come to the court with him or stand outside. I don't know what the issue is. Probably they're scared. It would be very much like if you got accused of terrorism nowadays and just like, if I show up, they're going to take a picture of me and they're going to follow me home and who knows what they're going to do. So it's probably fear, but in this very Jesus-like picture, he's all alone in his trial and definitely feeling deserted and betrayed. Can you imagine? I've only been to court a few times. It's never not a serious moment. Okay, this is one of the weird things about court. If you want to go someplace where it, life still feels serious, go to a courtroom, because it does still feel serious there. So I've only gone a couple times, and um, 
my natural bubbly joke telling nature just evaporates. It's like, I just don't want to get held in contempt, whatever I do. I've seen the movies that judge it anytime because they bail if get rid of that jokester in three months, you know, whatever it is, maybe. So it's just serious. And, um, Serious because there's some, usually somebody or some people in the room who are, who are in control of the next little bit of your life. And it's not you. And one of the times, one of the first times I went there was I went to King's Commission. This was back in the zeros, the early zeros of the millennia. And um, I was in Vernon as the youth leader. I wasn't getting paid everything, and I guarantee you I was worth every penny. But there was this youth guy who came in who was like on drugs and had been arrested for stealing firearms, which is a really serious crime. And he had a court date, and I was like, I'll go help him. I think I borrowed a jacket from my dad and a briefcase. I was trying to look important, and I think I didn't know. Like, Lord, are you going to ask me to jump up and say something here? Like, wait, he's innocent, or, but he's not, but just say it. And I didn't know what, but um, this guy was just panicked like crazy because he was going into a room where the judge could put him in jail. And, um, and so here's Paul. He's going to a room or a situation where he's literally going to get condemned to death and have his head chopped off, and he's just totally alone. And so I went there for this guy, and it was stressful for me to go there with him, even though I hadn't done anything. And it wasn't the worst thing in the world, stealing guns. It's not good. It is a crime, but it's not like other things. And so here's Paul dealing with this betrayal. Um, the people in his life have not obeyed the intention of thou shalt not commit adultery. They found something more important than their life following Jesus and their apostle in that moment. So how does Paul deal with it? Well, the next line after this confession, Timothy, uh, it's been really painful. Everybody deserted me. He says may it not be charged against them. So he wants to forgive, and he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Here I am experiencing a betrayal, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So he says, I don't want this to be the main thing in my life right now, is what they've done to me. He says, but, in, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And so as we're talking about uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, and how God is the faithful God who never commits adultery and does not break his covenant with people, but instead he's faithful to us because he wants to bring us into this life of living in loyal love with him as the best thing we've ever experienced. I just want to sit here for a few minutes and talk about getting to this place of saying the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Because it's been my observation, and if you feel like I'm talking about you, guess what? I'm talking about you and everybody else I talk to, so don't feel singled out. But it's been my observation that pain in our life and feeling betrayed often finds its way to rest on God the Father. This is very common. So this person hurt me, so now I can't trust you. It's very common. So people will say, "I, I believe in Jesus. He died on the cross. For me, I know he loves me, and I've got all these stories about nice things he's done for hurting people, so I'm good with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit's okay because he's invisible. So invisible people don't bother me usually. That's a bit of a joke. Um, But the Father, I don't know what to do with him. And in one sense, this doesn't make any sense at all because they, they all have the same character. 
You might remember from the Gospel of John when Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's about to be betrayed, and I think it was Philip says to him, show us the Father. Like, really let us know what God is like. Jesus, almost offended, says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's almost like, how do you even ask that? Like, do you really, have you been with me this long and you don't get, like, I am what the Father is like. When you, when you see me, you see the Father. Like, there is no, do you think we're different? Do you think I'm, I'm just down here running, like, damage control for, for a different kind of God? Like, God really wanted to do bad things to you, but don't worry, I snuck out of the house, and I'm just going to let you know. If you're not here on this and such a date, you'll be fine. But if you are there on that such a date, that's when the big stuff's coming down. So I'm just, you know, don't do this. You might want to put on a fake mustache and bleach your hair blonde because, you know, God's on the lookout for you. But I'm telling you, I'm letting, letting you off the hook here smuggling you out of here. No. Jesus, and especially in John, kept making the point, I'm only doing what my Father wanted me to do. I'm only saying what he wanted me to say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just like the Father. It is the Spirit of the Father. Okay? So same with you. You have a Spirit, and it is you. You know what I mean? You can't kind of say, my spirit's great. The rest of me is a bag. But, you know, it's like, no, you, you are your spirit. I'm a great person, except for my character. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? So the spirit is the spirit of the Father. It's the spirit of Christ. He has the character of the Father. And so when he's making love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in us, he's producing the character of the Father in us. So what I'm, all I'm trying to say is it doesn't make sense in, theologically to, to feel less trusting towards one of the members of the Trinity because there is only one God and they all have the same character. On the other hand, there is something about the Father that carries a different weight with us as, as children than Jesus the brother or Jesus the husband or the Holy Spirit who fills us as his temple. There is something about fatherhood that is just so weighty and can produce such insecurity and such worry about how we're doing with him. And this is really a big deal Because I am convinced from the life of Jesus that the fear that the Father secretly rejects us is the most insanity-producing fear a Christian can have. It is the most unbearable weight. It is the most deepest pain to think that the Father really doesn't want us, that he rejects us, that he's not faithful, that he's going to treat us like an adulterer. Where do I get that from? Well, if you were with us on Good Friday, you'll remember that we spent some time looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, I'm just going to thumb my way over there. And what I, what I was doing in that time was just marveling at the agonies of Jesus in the Garden. And I was just sharing the observation, which is a true observation, that when the Bible looks at the life of Jesus... When Jesus is on the cross and he's actually physically suffering, the scripture doesn't make a big deal of the pain he's going through. It just says, you know, oh, they took him and they crucified him. And that's like all the details. They don't mention any moaning. They don't mention any whatever. And Jesus isn't even necessarily complaining about the physical pain. They offered him wine mixed with gall, which would have been a painkiller. 
and he rejected it, so he wasn't afraid of the physical pain. And even, I was just reading through Luke again this week, even on the cross, Jesus is doing, he's thinking of others on the cross. You know, he's praying for people. God, God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In John, he's talking to um, Mary and saying, Mary, you go and live with John now. He, like Jesus is doing good deeds on the cross. He's thinking about other people. But when you're in the garden with Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is just in agony. And the scripture slows down to talk about the agonies of Christ in the garden in a way it doesn't do for when Jesus is on the cross. This is really stunning to me. It's kind of like, what is going on here? That the Bible would just say, oh, and they crucified him, and just kind of ignore the violence and the physical suffering. But the night before, when Jesus is praying about the cross, it slows down and says, we want, I want you to see this. And so here's Jesus. I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it for you again. Um, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping with sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter in temptation. So in the garden we see this, this soul agony in Christ in a way we don't see anywhere else in his life. Okay, he's, He says in Mark, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Like He's saying, I could physically die for what's going on in my soul right now. That's amazing, guys. Just think about this. Jesus was the strongest, most heroic person ever. Faced crowds of people who wanted to kill him. Just walked away. No problem. Total self-control. Fearless. Here in this moment, I could literally die. So much so that the Father had to send an angel to strengthen him. Because the wave of agony that came on him as he was praying for the cross to pass by him was so intense, he began to bleed out of his face. That's agony. What's he so in anguish about? He's in anguish anticipating the time when the Father will put on him his wrath because Jesus is going to die as a sacrifice for sin. That's what the agony is. Father, the cup of your wrath is coming. That's why he talks about a cup in the prophets. The cup almost always talks about the cup of God's wrath being poured out on the nation or poured out on Israel. Jesus is looking at the moment when the Father is going to turn away the face of love and turn towards him the face of wrath, and he is going to expel wrath on his son until death because Jesus is dying as the Passover lamb. And as Jesus anticipates rejection from the Father, he goes through physical agony to the point of bleeding out of his pores and nearly dying. So out of this, I see that for the Christian heart, the greatest agony you'll ever carry around in your life is thinking that deep down the Father rejects you. It will make you crazy. It will mess you up thinking deep down, God's going to reject me. Because when Jesus looked at that possibility, he nearly died. 
Jesus. Jesus. Jesus almost didn't make it to the cross because he was thinking about being rejected by the Father. Hello? That's insane. That's crazy to me. But it's true. And so if there's one thing I could, I could just want to just help us to see today, it would be this. It would just for each one of us just to say, the thing I, the thing I just got to work, I got to get, get right, is that God really does love me. The Father really does accept me through Jesus. Because the thing that might just mess up everything else is trying to just muscle through life, not, not being convinced, and not dealing with the Father. That, that's going to set us up for all kinds of trouble. So what happens if, if we as unbelievers, as believers, Christians, not believers, Christians, I don't even care about the labels right now, what happens to us when we look into heaven and we think that the Father is a rejecter, has an adulterous heart that doesn't keep his covenant that he makes to us through Christ? Well, a few things can happen. Number one, we start looking for pleasure idols right off the bat. Our human heart is made to just be enjoying the pleasure of God's love all the time. Oh, Christian, don't you know that you're so hungry to experience the pleasure of fellowship with God all the time? Has anybody ever just been like, oh, I'm just so done experiencing God's love? I'm just... I just need to go get in a fight with somebody, get them to trash me on Facebook because I'm just so done with experiencing God's tenderness. Never. We get tired. We get worn out. I know sometimes I get tired. Like, it's so intense. It's like this big spiritual bear hug, and after a while you're like, I can't breathe. You know, you just, you just loosen up a little bit. But we're made for it. And so if we're not kind of getting what God wants from us, remember we started by saying the first commandment is God saying, don't have any other gods because I made you to receive my love all the time and I want to be in an amazing love relationship with you and you need this. When we're thinking that won't happen, can't happen, we start looking for something or someone to fill the gap. And one of the biggest idols of the age for trying to replace knowing that God is a faithful father who really loves us through Jesus would be pornography. Somewhere around 50 to 60% of guys in the church, somewhere around 30% of women at the church. It's not just a men thing. I've been com- become convinced over my decades of dealing with this issue one way or another that the big lie that catches up Christians in pornography is this. Online, you can experience love and acceptance from people in a way that they'll never hurt you. They'll make themselves vulnerable to you clothes will not be there. They welcome you into feeling accepted because they're letting you in. But you can see them and they can't see you, so you're in control. And you can see them, but they can't see you, so they can't hurt you. I think this is the big killer. This is why we click. Because the promise is someone's going to accept me and they can't hurt me. Someone's going to love me, but they can't reject me. And it's a lie and it's a trap because you know once you've done it, the most guilt and shame you'll ever experience in your life just comes flooding over you. It's not the Father. You you were looking for the Father. You were looking for the Father. He wasn't there. It was a lie. It was a trap. And so uh, that I'm just I'm calling people back to the Father. The Father does forgive, and the Father wipes clean, and the Father accepts. The Father. Is more committed to his covenant relationship with each one of us than we are. 
Another thing that can happen is we can end up in bitterness. When deep down we think that we are in conflict with God, the Father, usually we're in conflict with a lot of other people around us as well. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. You'll remember this story, Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son. Prodigal, by the way, means like being overly generous in a way that you probably can't afford. So the son gets his inheritance from the father, goes off to another land, is prodigal with other people by buying them too many drinks and parting it up. And then he gets broke and ends up wandering his way home. And he comes home and the father's really generous with him. In fact, so much so that this is almost the story of the prodigal father. He's already given this guy his inheritance. And then when the guy shows back up, he's like, oh, by the way, here's a gold ring. Here's my best robe and let's kill our best calf, which is what's a cow worth nowadays? Like 1300 bucks or something like that. Like that's not cheap. So he's like, okay, here's my stinky son in the pigs, covered in the pig poop. And we're going to have a $2,000 meal. So it is the story of the prodigal father just giving away more than he can afford on his children. But the older son shows up, and I'll just read you the scripture starting in verse 25, sorry. Uh, Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. Good news. But he was angry, what? And refused to go in, note that. And his father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, comes, you've killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. What is the older brother's problem? He doesn't get that the father is always with him and that everything that belonged to the father is his. So when the brother comes back who has hurt the dad and hurt the brother and offended the dad and offended the brother and lived like a wastrel, honestly, and has come back, who is the older brother mad at that, that so much kindness is being shown? He's fighting with the father. He's outside fighting with the father. This is crazy. Did the father do anything? No. Did the father reject the older brother? No. But the son doesn't get that the father is always with him. I, those, those words, the father's response to the son's bitterness, Son, I am always with you. The thing that is the privilege of the older brother is he did not run away and try to find the love of the father with the prostitutes and the drinking. That was the older brother's blessing. He didn't run away. But even though he was still at home, he didn't understand that the father was always with him. So the brother came back, and it's bitterness and offense and problems, and he's fighting with God about the brother, but his issue is with God. Does that make sense? He's fighting with God about the brother, but the issue is with his father. And this is, I think, what can happen to us, happens to me. I feel insecure about the father. Everybody else is the problem. But you're really just fighting with the father. Does that make sense? 
And the heart issue is, God is not an adulterer. He does not break his covenants. He guards his relationship with us, and he takes care of us. When we're unfaithful, he remains faithful. Sometimes we can turn to something that's called legalism, which is when you're just trying to keep the rules. You don't know whether or not God loves you or not, but you're going to keep the rules, and if it turns out he doesn't like you, you can at least tell him that you were keeping the rules and it's his problem that things went wrong. Ah, not so hot. So I didn't make it through most of my notes. Can you guys forgive me? There's lots of good things I didn't get to, but let me just say this. That experience of having to face the rejection of God died on the cross for each one of us. Can we just, that's the truth. If you can just let your souls nod that that's the truth. That experience that you might fear that deep down God is not faithful to you, does not delight in you, does not want you, that he's going to just pull the rug out from underneath you, that he's got a bus somewhere, that he's going to chuck you under, that fear went on to the cross with Jesus Christ and it hung until dead and then was buried in a tomb. And then Jesus came out and who you are now came out of the tomb with him. You are post-rejection from God. That's who you are. That's who you are. You are post-being able to be rejected by God through Jesus Christ. It already happened. It's over. You're accepted. And now the Father says, I'm always with you. This is, I love the Holy Spirit. This is not in my notes, and I'm taking up your time, but I'm not going to see you for a week, so I'm sure you'll forgive me. I just love the Holy Spirit because he's invisible. Did you know if Jesus were still here in the body, you probably couldn't take him to work with you? Some of you work behind security doors, and Jesus wouldn't have clearance, and I don't have clearance. But because of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father is in you and with you all the time and everywhere. Everywhere you go, the love of God is in you and with you. I mean, the acceptance of the Father is in you as a living, eternal, infinite person and with you everywhere you go. This is amazing. The friendship of God is beside you everywhere you go because the Holy Spirit was sent down. It doesn't this is not. This is so much better than the crowds following Jesus. Maybe a couple people talk to him in a day, or maybe you got a hand laid on your forehead. The friendship of the Father is with you, and in you, everywhere you go. That's the best gift ever. And so, knowing that God is eternally faithful to us in Christ doesn't throw us under the bus. God calls us to turn around and learn how to do the same thing with each other. Amen. So. Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for the cross of Christ, which really did kill our rejectability. And Father, that you invented this plan. For we were even born, God. You were so faithful. You are so far away from a heart that would throw us under the bus. 
God, I pray that you take all these, this, all our feelings, Lord, and these knee-jerk reactions where it so naturally happens where somebody hurts us and you end up carrying the weight of us feeling hurt by other people and our thoughts about you are diminished by being hurt by other people. Lord, I just pray you would come into every heart and you'd set us free. You'd set us free, Lord, into the true confession that where you just say, look, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. No, no hurt, no pain, no history. Nothing we've received, nothing we've done. It can't, it can't, it can't. God is, God is with us. And so God, would you help us to lean into you, lean into your love, lean into your, your embrace, lean into you through the Holy Spirit. And out of knowing who you are, Lord, that we grow in our relationships with other people. Amen.